Would you now uh, please open your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And we will be looking today at verses 31 to 39 as we continue our series over the summer called Gospel Reset. We are gospel amnesiacs. We tend to forget it. We tend to... um, allow it to lose its uh, centrality in our experiences. And because of that, I thought it would be a good time to think through these issues. Today we're talking about gospel security. Dennis Johnson, one of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars, said the following. He said, Only when our obedience flows from a justification-secured assurance of the Father's approval of us for his Son's sake is our obedience an expression of love for God above all rather than an attempt to obligate through our efforts. With that in mind, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What, shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we open the Word of God and open our souls to it, that your Word will do its work in us. We do thank you, of course, that it is by your Word that uh, we are saved. The Scriptures tell us it is by the engrafted Word of God. It is the seed, the imperishable seed, which you use to call forth and evoke and create in us life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by your word. May you create faith in us, and may you sustain and build up faith in us through your word today. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we uh, consider the subject of gospel security, I think it's important to remember that We're challenged here as in every other way in the Christian life. Let me ask you this question. Do you 
Live your life each day by basking in the glow of this reality that God is for you, not against you. Or do you find yourself having more in common with the prodigal son returning home after he came to himself with an overwhelming sense of suspicion of the father's love, welcome, and acceptance? Many of us have a confession to make. We have tended to believe that there's also a dark side to the matter of Christianity when we read of the threatening truth of God's holiness and righteousness and justice and his wrath against sinners. And since we're still sinners, though we are simul ustus et peccator, at the same time a sinner and at the same time righteous in Jesus, do we not occasionally find ourselves struggling with doubt or insecurity or a fear as we approach God? Sometimes the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, those attributes of God that are incommunicable, that uh, make the godness of God shine, are sometimes intimidating unless we also understand that God is imminent. He is very near. He draws uh, close to us as we draw near to him. But sometimes we struggle with a sense of security because we look too much inside and not enough outside of ourselves. We're looking for reasons. We're on a deep search for reasons why God should love us as we are. And I have a sad report for you. There are no good reasons for God to ever love us within us. There are just none. And we need to lose that idea of, of looking for a cachet of some kind of goodness within that will make God somehow attracted to and drawn to us in ourselves. God loves us as we are in his son because he loves his son. But he also loves us. And nothing can separate us from his love. Sometimes... Uh, we may even have a little bit of a twisted theology in terms of the idea that the atonement was Jesus' attempt to get the Father to love us. That somehow the Father is at cross purposes with the Son, and so Jesus had to come and die for our sins and triumph over the grave and resurrect to get the Father to look toward us and love us again. But it was the love of the Father who sent his Son for us while we were yet sinners shaking our puny little hands in his face, as it were. And so this morning, as we think about these issues, when we do not grasp the Father's love for us, we're in a world of hurt. Uh, when we only see God in legal categories and forensic categories, rather than as our uh, Father who has adopted us into his family, sometimes that can create a cloud of fear and doubt and insecurity. And so today, my attempt is going to be to get you to learn to live in the love of God and uh, to allow it to grasp your heart consistently, daily even. Um, I want you to find the grace of God amazing again. I want you to be agape, wide open mouth getting a sunburn on your tonsils as you think of how Jesus came. I, I'm Southern. I have a Southern accent. You know, 
I do. Somebody came to me the other day and says, you have a funny way of talking. You have a southern accent. And I said, listen, it took me 67 years to perfect this accent. Don't you dare tell me I need to lose it, okay? I've been working at this really hard for 67 years. I am joking, by the way. I did have some lessons to help me not sound so uh, backwoods, shall we say. (laughs) Now, as soon as we come to Jesus Christ, we inherit three enemies immediately. They're called in Scripture the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in particular, when it comes to doubting salvation, I think the weight of it comes from the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, who is the accuser of the brethren. As soon as we come to Christ, we find ourselves in enemy territory that has hidden minds everywhere. Sinister explosive devices planted by a malignant hand in an attempt to destroy our Christian faith. Of course, Satan can attack us, but never ultimately destroy us. Christian faith Uh, never destroy our true Christian faith because we are preserved by God's grace. It is his grasp of us that ultimately wins the day. Therefore, he seeks to destroy our enjoyment and our basking and our soaking, as it were, in the grace of God. And sadly, he's frequently successful at this. Um, One of the ways he does this is by the fiery darts uh, by which he attacks Christians. This, of course, is drawn from Paul's book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. And I just want to read that for you. And we're not going to focus on the whole armor of God, but today we're going to talk more about the shield of faith and exactly what that means because I believe Romans 8 especially verses 31 through 39, really talk about the fiery darts of the evil one attacking us and the way in which we can use the shield of faith to protect ourselves. So just listen to this from Ephesians. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. So we need to learn what the shield of faith is and how to use the shield of faith in our warfare. Paul's word for the word shield here Therios comes from the Greek word for a door, a door. Um, It refers to the long, oblong-shaped shield Roman soldiers uh, carried into battle for whole body protection. It was more than four feet long and at least two feet wide. Uh, 
These shields were deployed in many different ways in battle. One technique was to dampen the shield so that the blazing arrows fired against them would be quenched, and so often they would soak their shields in water. The opening uh, moments of the movie Gladiator vividly portrays such a scene with arrows and their tips dipped in pitch set ablaze and shot toward the enemy forces, of course, attempting to create panic in order to put them to flight. Paul makes use of this metaphor, this picture, when he describes this Christian spiritual armor. Clearly, he's not thinking about the guards who were there who didn't have such a shield, but rather the warfare. Jesus builds his church in enemy-occupied territory. The prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians, is Satan himself, a personal, malignant being who has none of the omnis, nowhere near the power of God, nowhere near uh, the authority of God, but yet much more than we are. Has much more. He's, a, he's a, got a long history. He knows the human heart very well. He appears in the Garden of Eden, as we know, in chapter 3 as a serpent. But we live in enemy-occupied territory. We live on the battlefield. We're often exposed to the attacks of the evil one. But the gospel provides for us marvelous defensive armor that can withstand all of Satan's opposition. Easy for you to say. The what and the how. It's one thing for us to know that God himself is a shield for his people. It's another thing altogether for us to know how to use the shield of faith in the battle that God gives us for protection. Knowledge, by the way, always needs to be translated into wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge and understanding applied and we need to learn how to apply the shield of faith as we live in this world and in the battlefield and it's extremely important not only to answer theological questions that all begin with what what is this what is that how do we distinguish the two what's the truth about this what is the shield of faith that knowledge has value but such knowledge is of little value unless it un helps us understand how questions. How does this work out in my life? How do I learn daily to hide myself beneath the shield of faith? Precisely here, Paul is a great help to us. Of course, in Romans 8, 28, he affirms that God takes all things and works them together for good for believers since we have been called according to his purpose. God has an invincible plan. Nothing and no one can stop it. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he marked out. Those he marked out, he called in space and time. Those he called, he's already justified. Those he justified, he glorified past tense. Why does Paul string all of that together, the golden chain of salvation? Because in God's mind, it's already accomplished. He has a grasp of you. You are held by him in the hands and fingers of omnipotence. No one can remove you from God's grasp. 
And so believing that, trusting that, relying upon that delivers us from lots of fears. But even though we may know all of this, it may make no difference in the way we live uh, Monday through Saturday. John Owen liked to say it's uh, a difference between knowledge of the truth and knowledge of the power of the truth. How can this truth vitalize us? How can it energize us? How can it empower us? We may know factual knowledge about the character of God that he is a shield, and yet at the same time every day lack confidence about his protection. And so the real question for Paul and for us is not, is God able to keep his people secure? It is the real question, how is God going to keep me secure? Not do I know what God's plan is, but what practical difference does it make in my life to know that God has that kind of plan? Not what do I know, but how do I put into action what I already know? And when we think those kind of questions, we can look at this passage in Romans and begin to come to some conclusions about how to do it. We can express it another way. Paul believes that the Christian is secure, but he's now asking more penetrating questions. What does it mean to me when I feel as though all hell is breaking loose in an assault against my soul? What do I do then? How do I use the truth that God has revealed to me in order to stand in this evil day? How does God, in practical terms, keep me and mine secure when the fiery darts of Satan are aimed at me and are in flight coming at me? It's just here that the questions Romans 8, 31 through 35 have great significance. Paul begins by asking a what question. What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31a. But from that point onward, his questions all employ personal interrogative who's. Verse 31b, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's lack? Verse 34a, who is he who condemns? Verse 35a, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is not asking what is going to provide the opposition to my perseverance in the Christian life. No, he is asking who is going to do this. So why does he ask the question that way? The answer is that Paul knows the identity of the who. He goes on to mention four of the most powerful fiery darts that Satan aims at the Christian believer in order to destroy or at least dampen our enjoyment of the grace of God. Fiery dart number one. God is against you. He just really doesn't like you. There's something about you that ticks him off and that's why your life goes so badly. That is fiery dart number one. He's not really for you. How can he believe he's for you when you see all of these things happening in your life and if it's not one thing, it's another thing and it just keeps on coming. When will my life... I, I read a story of a young Christian girl who went to a mature w ladies Bible study. And so they were studying uh, a very important topic about the love of God and all these things. And so the girl sat there quiet the whole time. 
never uttered a sound until the very end and they ask her what uh, do you have anything you would like to add or, or say you haven't said a word and she said all I want to know is when is my life not going to suck anymore that's what she said when is my life not going to suck anymore we're going to find out where that comes from okay fiery dart number two I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins that's what Satan says to us Satan argues what can you say in your defense all the things God has done for you and you are still sinning what can you say in your defense you have nothing to say fiery dart number three you say you're forgiven but there's a payday coming a payback day coming a condemnation day you're deceived Satan insinuates how will you defend yourself then before the throne of almighty God who is uh, holier than we can bear who uh, can't even look upon sin approvingly fiery dart number four given your track record as we look together at your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? What makes you think you're going to do that? Where are you going to get the strength to do that? You're weak. You vacillate. You're not consistent. These are the four fiery darts, and they hit their targets in the minds and consciences of many Christians. These questions and accusations come unbidden. We don't ask for them, but they become part of our thinking, emerging from the forefront of our minds from who knows where. Many Christians can testify that the unsettling of the heart uh, that this produces. Suddenly our thoughts are afire with fears and doubts. We lose our hold on peace, joy, assurance, and hope. We lose sight, sense, and sound of the strong word of the gospel which says there is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when Satan fires these fiery darts against us, what are we to do? I want you to listen as Paul faces down the enemy. He had also experienced these wounds made by these darts, perhaps more than on one occasion, and Satan sought to destroy his faith, surely, there was much in Paul's past to inflame guilt and fear. We hear him confess some of it in Scripture. But here's the first dart. Who can be against us? God has promised in Romans that he takes everything and works it together for the good of his people. If God is for us, if he's for us, it follows that ultimately nothing can ever stand against us. That's just logical. Otherwise, God would not be God. And if something else can rise up against God and overcome him, then that other thing would be God. That's why R.C. Sproul used to say in class all the time, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. And so, God would then prove to be a false God, no God at all, so who would care? It's over. But on the contrary, Paul is saying in the last analysis, nothing can be against us if God is for us in an ultimate sense. But this raises the million-dollar question. Is God for me? Perhaps even more pointed to the, is the personal question, how do I know 
that God is for me. Well, do you know that? And if you know that, how do you know that? Satan is very insistent about this indeed. He has been insistent on this question from the very beginning pages of Scripture. He asked it in the Garden of Eden. In fact, his first recorded words were an assault on God's gracious character. Will we never learn how much Satan hates God and his people? And if you are one of his people, he hates you. He is a liar. Jesus said he is the father of lies. He cannot tell the truth. He never tells the truth. And you will find this innuendo repeated in various forms and guises throughout your Christian life. You need to have biblical answers to those questions. Here's the uh, assault that Satan makes. Did God put you in this lavish garden and forbid you to eat from any of its trees? What kind of God would do that? He's holding out on you. You don't think he's really for you, do you? If he's that kind of thing, this innuendo, as again, is found all throughout Scripture. How do you know God is really for you? Where should you look for the proof that God is for you? Does it lie in the fact that your Christian life has been one of unhappy, unbroken happiness? No. Does it lie in the fact that your Christian life has been one of ecstatic joy? No. There is only one irrefutable answer to these questions, and it cannot be found in us or in our circumstances. It lies only in the provision God has made for us in Jesus Christ. And there's only one irrefutable answer to this question. Paul, this is the whole point of Paul's question in verse 32. We can be sure that God is for us because this God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, did not spare his own son, but gave him up to the cross for us all. If this is true, Paul affirms, we can be confident he will give us everything we will ever need. He argues from the lesser to the greater. Ad minoris to ad majoris in Greek, or call the homer in Hebrew. He argues from the uh, greater, excuse me, to the lesser. I got that backwards, so turn it around. He argues from the major to the minor. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If God gave up his son for you, what more proof do you need if he delivered him up for our sins? If he took his son as a sacrifice, laid upon him our sin. Remember Abraham going up on Mount Moriah. And God has told him what? You need to sacrifice your son Isaac. Isaac represented to Abraham all the reality of every dream he'd ever had of his relationship with God and the future of it. And God tells him now, go kill him. Go sacrifice him on the mount. And so you see these two pitiful characters going up to the mountain, and on the back of Isaac is the wood for the sacrifice. He must have been 13 or 14, strong young buck, walking up the mountain with Abraham, who had to be, I don't know, close to 90. And so they get up to the mountain, and they prepare the sacrifice, and Isaac look, looks around, and he said, We have the wood, but I don't see the sacrifice. And Abraham takes out the knife. And Abraham is prepared to lay Isaac on that pile of wood and take the knife and sacrifice him. And God stops his hand 
and provides in the bush a ram who is substituted for Isaac. But when God the Son came to the earth, no one stopped God's hand from delivering up His Son, His precious Son, and took our sin and laid it upon His Son. And if God is willing to do that, this is the only sure way we can know that He's for us. In the pages of the gospel, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up, was handed over by one person or group to another until eventually he was handed over by Pilate to be crucified as a criminal. But Paul understood that behind every human handing over was the purpose of God's heart. He handed over is the same verb, his own son, to bear the condemnation due to sinners. Here's the heart of the plan of God and the story and wonder of the gospel. The best of all men dies as though he was the worst of all criminals. This is not merely a matter of human wickedness destroying a good man. It is in the heart and purpose of God, as Isaiah had long before prophesied in chapter 53. Behind the handing over of the Lord Jesus by Judas Iscariot, by Herod, by the Romans, by Pontius Pilate, stood the purpose of his heavenly Father handing him over on the cross in order to die in your place, the sinner's place. He bore God's judgment and wrath against his sin. What inexpressible love this is. But there's a powerful implication here. Paul insists that Christians learn to think clearly and draw deductions from the gospel. Therefore, he points here to a powerful practice, uh, practical implication of the cross. God can point us to the cross and say, Do you see how much I love you? I was prepared to bear my own judgment against your sin in the person of my own son. If I was prepared to do that for you, there is nothing I will withhold from you that is for your good that is defined by what God calls good. You will never understand the heart of God until you understand this. If you want to know God and to hear His heart beat for us, we must realize that His Son died on the cross for us. It is as if God Himself says to us, if you want to know me and you want to understand my commitment to save and bless you, if you want to be sure of the privileges that are yours and the security that I have provided for you, then you must not look first at the circumstances of your life and conclude things are going well for me, therefore God must love me. No, you must look at the cross and say, my God was willing to give up his son for me. That is why I know that he loves me. The only way you can really feel and experience the security of God's love is by beginning to understand the real inner meaning of the death of Jesus on the cross. Rather than abandon you to his judgment against your sin, God bore that judgment himself, and if I may put it reverently, through the loss of his own son. Paul says, he is prepared to count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. 
We can also say that the Heavenly Father was prepared to count everything as lost. He was prepared to count His own Son as lost in order that we might know His love and grace toward us. So when those fiery darts come, and they will, how do you really know God loves you? His answer is not, I deserve to be loved. Neither is it, things are going well in my life, so it's obvious that God loves me. On the contrary, he knows he does not deserve to be loved. At times, he writes as if, as if everything's against him. Paul knows that God has given his son for him. And if God has given his son for him, God will stop at nothing in order to bring him to eternal glory. Who can be against us? No one, not even Satan, with all of his seduction and deceit and lies, no opposition can withstand God's love and purpose for us. I can see right now that if we're going to do all four of these questions, you're going to have to listen a whole lot faster. Because I might break loose and preach here in a minute. All right. Southern, sorry. Who will bring any charge? We'll go through this one. If the shield of Satan's first fiery dart is God's gift of His Son, what is our defense against the accusations that seem to match the guilt we all feel? Satan is specifically called the accuser of our brethren. Revelation 12.10 When he employs this particular dart, he accuses believers of guilt and sin and claims that these will ultimately damn them in the presence of God. Zechariah, in his prophecy, gives a powerful illustration of this. In that book, we see Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, and his priestly clothes are filthy and nasty. The filth represents his iniquity. Iniquity in the Bible means crookedness or perversity. Beside him stands Satan accusing him. Look at him. Look at Joshua covered in the filth of his sin. He is not fit for the presence of Almighty God. Satan is subtle enough to even use God's holy law to accuse us of sin. He stirs up the remaining sin in our hearts. And then once we're conscience, conscious of its presence, he begins to accuse us mercilessly. Satan brings sudden temptation into our mind, perhaps distasteful, even at times blasphemous thoughts. I remember a few years back, and nobody will know who it is, but there was a person attending Spring Meadows regularly, and he was so afraid that he had committed the sin of blasphemy. And uh, I finally got him to see that no one would care. <laughs> If they had blasphemed Christ, why would you care that you had done that? I said, that, that's one thing. I said, the second thing is, that's an accusation that smells like smoke and sulfur and comes out of the pit of hell. And so we went through all of this, and eventually he began to understand that that was the, the, the devil's unique way to assault him and to get him off track assaulting him in that area. He was probably one of the, he was a lot better Christian than I was, so, you know, I'm scratching my head going, hey. But um, Satan is subtle enough in all of these ways. 
He'll bring uh, sudden temptations or thoughts into our mind that are blasphemous. Satan has much with which to accuse us. These things have no place in the mind of a Christian believer, he screams at us. How can you possibly belong to Christ and be thinking those kinds of evil thoughts? Well, I want to marshal in a, a very good and helpful uh, church historian named Richard Lovelace to help, help us understand this. Uh, many of the charges that Satan brings against us uh, as the accuser of the brethren are slandering. Satan himself is called diabolos, which means slanderer. Just as easily he can insinuate temptations into our mind. The devil can tune us into a kind of demonic mental radio station which is constantly giving his opinion of our weakness and depravity. Uh, Tokyo Rose and Hanoi Jane found such radio stations helpful in the demoralizing of opposing truths. The devil is surely not behind them in skill. He can distort our self-image into a caricature with all our faults exaggerated and all our virtues obscured. He can try to destroy our confidence that God loves us because of the continuing patterns of sin in us, our besetting sins. If we've broken out of those patterns, he can, patterns, he can tempt us into individual instances of sin. Then he tries to convince us that sin has us in unbreakable bondage and that therefore God will neglect or even destroy us in the judgment. He can divide us from other Christians by whispering accusations against them in our hearts, caricaturing them in our minds. Perhaps at the same time, he is caricaturing us in their minds. You say, Pastor, are you crazy? Sometimes I wonder. But I guarantee you, he will put the most awful thoughts in my mind. Even during communion. I never cease to be amazed at what he may suggest to me. Filthy. Just horrible stuff. Unthinkable stuff. And somebody would say, well, how do you know you're a Christian? Because I'm not dependent on me and my righteousness. I'm depending not only on the one who hung on the cross for me, but the one who was vindicated in his resurrection from the dead, where God stamped, paid in full, your sins are forgiven, and now you have the righteousness of my son accredited to your account. So I, I, I you know, I, it's hard for me to discern sometimes what is remaining residual indwelling sin in me and what is the voice of Satan? It all comes together. But I have walked around, especially as a pastor, thinking, you know, I'll look at one of you and you'll have a hard look on your face or you'll walk right by me and not say something. And I'll start thinking, what did I do? You know, what did I say? Or I find out people are angry with me and I have no idea why. Or I start entertaining thoughts toward you. And you say, is that for real? It is for me. And what I tend to find, and what church history tends to point out, is the closer you get to Jesus and the more of the threat you are to an enemy, the worse it gets. It doesn't get better. Somebody asked me if I believe the devil. I said, yes, he lives in my backyard. He's there every second, constantly whispering his whispering campaign. Blasphemies in the mind of a Christian? Yes. Uh, if you want to uh, know about that, read John Bunyan's masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. 
don't have time to stay there. But you're not alone if you've experienced things like this. You're not alone. Indeed, many have been oppressed by Satan in this way, paralyzed spiritually because they have felt uh, that no other believer could have ever experienced this. They fear that uh, they are not believers after all, and they sink into despair. But that's one of Satan's darts. He fires. Um, many of us know about Martin Luther. Martin Luther had all kinds of conversations with the enemy. So when this happens to you, where do you go? What do you do? Uh, to whom can you turn? To what will you appeal can you appeal to the fact that you're a mature Christian or the quality of the Christian service? Can you appeal to your spiritual condition and say, I'm usually better than this? These are not secure defenses against the fiery dart of the devil. Here is elsewhere we can learn by sitting at the feet of the masters of spiritual life, one of whom is Martin Luther, who knew a thing or two about these attacks, emphasized the need to see that the gospel that saves us is outside of us. Um, and he emphasized the fact that we are not accounted righteous in God's sight, either by regeneration or even by our sanctification or lack thereof. The fact that we have been born again doesn't justify us. It gives us a new heart but itself does not provide the forgiveness of sins. No, the gospel saves us entirely outside of us. It is Jesus Christ incarnate, crucified for our sins, raised for our justification, who saves us. The atonement through which we stand in a righteous, forever justified relationship to God is neither a change in our hearts or a new feeling. We may have all kinds of feelings as a result of justification, but justification is based on what God has done for us in Jesus. That's why faith is looking outside of ourselves. Calvin said the reason why the organ of salvation is faith is because it is self-emptying. When I extend a hand to receive something, I have humbled myself and I have nothing to give. I'm coming with pure receptivity. And so that's how God saves us. And that's how we remember to fight the uh, charges against us. John Newton, who was a very wise pastor in uh, 18th century England, understood this well. He wrote of being bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. He then described what he did under those oppressive circumstances. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him. Now, what would you tell him? Think about that for a moment. Not I have been a better than average Christian or I made a decision for Christ 20 years ago at a Billy Graham crusade, of course, longer than that. These are flimsy defenses against the fiery darts of the devil. He can easily penetrate that. What then do you say to him? Newton comments, Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Satan has no weapons that can penetrate the breastplate of righteousness. When we tell him Christ has died for us, borne God's judgment against our sin, he is defeated. One little word will fail him. We're saved by Christ through faith. 
Benjamin Warfield said, it's not even faith in Christ that saves us. It is Christ who saves us through faith. And there's a big difference in those two statements. If you should experience anything like the satanic attacks I'm talking about, you have to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself. What Christ is doing in you is still incomplete, but with what Jesus has done for you, there is not one single tiny crack that a satanic arrow can penetrate. Jesus is our shield. Third question, and this will be my last one. We'll continue. I'm not going to drop it. Who can condemn us? Satan's third fiery dart is his suggestion that despite our experience of forgiveness as Christians, we still face condemnation someday. How should we defend against this flaming dart? What is the difference between accusation and condemnation? Condemnation takes place when an accusation against us proves to be well-founded. As we have seen, Satan constantly accuses believers. Though he has no power to condemn us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. His goal, however, is to make you feel condemned. And if Satan accuses me and I respond, you know, you're right. I look within my heart, I see my sinfulness, I have no standing in God's presence, then Satan's condemning words could overwhelm me and I would lose my enjoyment of the grace of God. The truth is that in myself I am condemned because I remain a sinner. That is why sometimes we mistakenly listen to this satanic lie. When we are tempted to believe him rather than God, we make the mistake of listening to his accusations based on our ongoing sinfulness. Hadn't you gotten over that yet? Are you still living with that besetting sin? Are you still confessing the same sin over and over? How in the world can you tell me you are righteous? We tell him that we are righteous in Christ, not in our own record or performance or resume. Having been accused and forgetting that our only righteousness is in Christ makes us feel condemned. Paul asks, who is he that condemns you? Well, Satan certainly seeks to. Paul responds, it is Christ Jesus who died, furthermore is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. What a relief to know that when we have made an absolute mess of our lives, when we have felt the accusations of Satan and condemned ourselves, when we are ashamed to go into the presence of God, when we go to church and look around thinking, I'm such a hypocrite, you feel like a failure, indeed you probably have failed, remember then that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, He is your advocate, remember that He is there for your sake, he died once for you. He intercedes for you forever. There's a song we sing here that I love, and I want to quote two verses of it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love and ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no power can force me to depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, 
my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When Satan's darts of condemnation bring you low, never, ever forget that God sees you as his child without first looking at you through the Son, his own Son, who is interceding for you. God delights in us. And so those are three of the fiery darts. If you want the fourth one, I can preach another 30 minutes. No, I'm not going to do it. Nothing can separate us from his love. I'll do that next week, okay? Because that's worthy of a whole sermon. But that's where we live. How do we translate our theology, uh, orthodoxy, into orthopraxis? Right theology, right doc doctrine, into right living. We have to learn how to put on the whole armor of God. There are days when I will meditate on that passage in Ephesians and I will envision myself taking the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, girding up the loins, that's the belt, the belt of truth, a feet shod with the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith, and the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which Jesus used in his encounter with the devil in the wilderness, quoting back to him God's word. So, you, you know, this Christian life, I never had any enemies till I became a Christian. I mean, I had people I didn't like. But the worst enemies I've ever had are the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the way, next week I might talk a little bit about how the zeitgeist of the current age, the spirit of the age, what a lot of us are seeing happening to our country, there is a massive massive campaign of lies. There's always a massive campaign of lies. Media reinforce whichever one you want to choose. That constantly, that's why we as believers in Christ need to be on our face crying out to God for revival of the church. Of the church. That's where the problem is. We've got too many churches 40 miles wide and a half inch deep. Would that God would humble us and send a revival. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. It is just such a comfort. It, you know us better than we know ourselves. You cut through all of the haze and confusion uh, with the truth. And now, Father, as we continue to worship you today, we pray that as... We come to think about giving. We would give as people who are grateful, who are overwhelmed with gratitude. And uh, we thank you for your unspeakable gift. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.